The Ortho PAC, hosted by Sam Dyer. Welcome to the Ortho PAC, where we discuss up-to-date orthopedic topics for the busy clinician. I invite you to sit back and relax as I attempt to fill in the gaps between education, current events, and real-world practice. We're now back with Dr. Marks talking about pain psychiatry. When I came to practice in the late 90s, there was a push. And when I say there was a push, if you were there, I mean, it was almost shameful if you weren't giving people pain medications. The, the, you know, the, the thinking, and I, I remember going to many conferences and, you know, talks, and it, it, they said, be more aggressive with treating pain. People hurt, make sure to take care of them. And, and today's environment is a whole lot different. What happened? Well, that's a really important point that you bring up, and and that's why I referred to it earlier as a pendulum that swings back and forth like a lot of things we see in in medicine. So in the 1990s, uh, there was the general consensus that that we were under-treating pain, and a lot of different things fed into that. You know, for one thing, you're probably familiar with it, the, with JCO, the Joint Accreditation for uh, Healthcare Organizations. They issued their standards of pain management. That was in the late 90s. I can't remember the exact year, but you know that included the verbiage that patients have the right to appropriate assessment and management of pain. That's those same guidelines are where the idea as pain is the fifth vital sign comes from. And uh, if your listeners are not aware of that, as a patient may check into a thermology clinic or a derm clinic or something like that. And as they're getting their vital signs taken, they're always asked, well, do you hurt anywhere? And, you know, give me a scale, a number from zero to 10, how much pain do you have? And, you know, this was all part of the thrust that patients are, are being undertreated and they have the right to be appropriately treated for pain. It's, it's hard to argue with that logic. And simultaneously with that, the Federation of State Medical Boards issued their model guidelines for the use of controlled substances for the treatment of pain. That was in uh, 1998. And, you know, it was a big hit. It was endorsed by the American Academy of Pain Medicine, the DEA, even the American Pain Society, all all these various regulatory bodies. These guidelines were essentially designed to be guidelines that the individual state medical boards could adopt. But the verbiage of the Federation of State Medical Boards guidelines included things that there's a significant body of evidence suggesting that both acute and chronic pain continue to be undertreated and that the undertreatment of pain is recognized as a serious public health problem. They even went so far as to say that that appropriate pain management is the treating physician's responsibility and that the board would consider inappropriate treatment of pain to be a departure from standards of practice and would investigate those types of allegations. And so, you know, physicians were uh, scared, appropriately so. You, you know, they're having their governing bodies tell them that they could be sanctioned, investigated and sanctioned for undertreating pain. And there were a lot of other things that led to, I guess, where we are today. There were some new branded extended release opioids that were coming to market and these marketing thrusts that are educational, but, you know, with an agenda. And so these ER opioids were coming out and people were emphasizing, you know, the the companies were emphasizing that pain is being undertreated and that these are effective and safe medications for the treatment of pain. And so I think as a society, we need to take some responsibility for this as well. I think we all want to quick fix and we'd all rather take a pill than diet and exercise or do physical therapy and whatnot. But a lot of these things came together. And I think what you were alluding to is it it brought us to where we are today, which is 
uh, well, not even today, but where we've been for the last several years, which is that the number of opioid prescriptions, particularly for chronic non-cancer, chronic non-malignant pain, just skyrocketed. But along with that, so did the morbidity and mortality associated with opioids. What you saw was a dramatic increase in uh, overdose deaths and overdose morbidity. You saw a dramatic increase in addiction. Essentially, any marker of morbidity was increased as we were prescribing more opioids through the, the late 90s and 2000s, probably till, you know, I don't know, 2008, 2009, something of that nature. North Carolina has a STOP Act, and several states have similar legislations. And part of that was, you know, certain pain clinics were, I think, more unscrupulous and doling out tons of medication. How has that affected your practice? It's just amazing to me the number of medications that were prescribed in some of these examples. Has this affected you at all? It really has, Sam. I mean, what you bring up is so important. You started that question by alluding to what we've colloquially, uh, colloquially, I guess is the word, called these pill mills. Mm -hmm. There certainly was some of that. There was certainly some grossly inappropriate prescribing of opioids. But I think more than that, what we had was a significant increase in opioid prescribing without the development of these proper systems to put in place or any real standard of care or best practices geared at preventing or reducing this morbidity and mortality caused by having all these opioids out there in the community. That's where we talk about the opioid epidemic. So I, I don't believe that there was a ton of just gross neglect and, and you know poorly prescribing of opioids. But what I do think happened was suddenly we have all these opioids out there and, uh, you know, people had extra because they were getting, uh, you know, maybe a 30-day supply and they only needed a two-day supply or something. Mm -hmm. And there was a market for this. You know, you know, there were there were people in the community with addiction who understood that these were available and, and would seek them out. And anyway, it's been understood for, I don't know, 10 or 15 years that, that this is a problem and that communities and governments and clinicians and really everyone has to work to combat this from multiple angles. I think it's it's also simultaneously been pointed out that there has never really been a lot of scientific evidence pointing to opioids being very effective for long-term for chronic pain. Now, I think that that actually holds true for a lot of different classes of medications that we use because, as you know, a lot of clinical trials, certainly the clinical trials that are usually done to get drugs FDA approved tend to be you know, six-week, eight-week trials or something for a lot of different indications. But now here you have this thrust of prescribing more opioids for chronic pain without a lot of scientific evidence to, uh, to back it up. What has what has happened? So what's happened is that there have been these guidelines and laws, including the North Carolina Stop Act, and they're designed to promote lower doses and shorter supplies and better monitoring, including things like checking the prescription monitoring program. They're designed to foster more education for prescribers. And, you know, all, all of this is is great and certainly obviously well-intentioned. Uh, I think it it has led to a little bit of opioid phobia. And again, if it's a pendulum, it swung very far in the other direction. And you're seeing a lot of clinicians now that are very reluctant or unwilling to prescribe opioids. And I think we're back to where pain, in some cases, can be undertreated. Uh, as you also have seen, the guidelines have advocated for lower doses, and so many patients are getting their, their doses lowered. 
you brought up the STOP Act. Now, now the STOP Act, that came out in 2017 in North Carolina, and then some of the, the laws, some, some of the, the impact of that didn't take place until 2018. But I think that that may have affected you guys more than me. I mean, it really had a significant impact on orthopedic practice. The restrictions included limiting post-op prescriptions to seven days at a time, to limiting uh, acute pain prescriptions to five days at a time. And again, you know, in my world, I'm, I'm treating people with if they had pain for 20 years. But I think in your world, you're probably seeing a lot of people that come in with an injury or post-op. And, uh, you know, I guess there was a time, as I mentioned before, where somebody might have a surgery and get 30 days worth of a short-acting opioid, and they would need it for maybe three days. And then now up on the shelf, they have this this large bottle of a pretty dangerous substance. So all of that, I think, has been a, a really helpful change with the North Carolina STOP Act. There are some other caveats to it, and you're, you may be more familiar than I am, but I know that there's some guidelines about if you're an extender, uh, if you're a PA or a nurse practitioner, you're supposed to consult with the supervising physician every 90 days for each patient. Uh, there's some other rules about checking the prescription monitoring program every three months, which is a great idea. And I, I think that's largely done in clinical, clinical practice uh, at this point. In my world, let's say in my world, the, the bigger impact has been from the Center for Disease Control Guidelines from 2016. Now, those were really intended for primary care, guidelines for the, for the use of opioids in primary care settings. However, you know, they did recommend specific doses that you should think twice about exceeding in terms of uh, daily morphine equivalents. And Gosh, I mean, insurance companies and regulatory bodies have really latched on to those doses, and uh, we'll get insurance companies are denying opioids above uh, a certain morphine equivalent. Uh, you're seeing, uh, I'm, you know, I'm getting letters from various third-party payers that they're just not going to cover uh, the patient's treatment anymore unless uh, we bring their dose down. There were other aspects of the CDC guidelines, including they pointed out the high rate of of benzo use among opioid fatalities, and they've recommended against the use of benzodiazepines and opioids together where possible. And that obviously makes great sense, but I'm, I'm having patients, uh, you know, turned away from the pharmacy because they, their insurance company won't pay for them to be on an opioid and a benzo at the same time. And, you know, for many patients, they shouldn't be, but for a select few, they are. And so this is, as you can imagine, has affected my practice a great deal. And I get a lot of referrals. I get a lot of referrals from my peers for patients who have chronically been on opioids and benzos or on uh, opioids at higher doses than the CDC guidelines have sanctioned, so to speak. And a lot of the work I do now is designed at determining what's, how do you best balance effectiveness and, and safety? That's the kind of practice that I have. And those are the kinds of things that I think about day to day. Coming up next, more on pain management and pain psychiatry with Dr. Marks. Please follow the Physician Assistance in Orthopedic Surgery on social media. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Please subscribe to our podcast. If this has been helpful, please take a moment to leave a review.